Thanks for joining us this week for the Church at Starkey Hills podcast. Be sure to visit our website at starkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. All right, welcome again to the Church at Starkey Hills. We are launching into a brand new book in the Old Testament, book number two of five written by Moses, and we're going to talk about that today, and it is amazing. It is not legend, it is not myth, it is historical fact. God did a great thing in the life of his people. God is still doing great things in the life of his people. And as we just sang, he's the same God now. Amen? Now, I want you to know that although this book was written about 3,500 years ago, it's not an old book, it is an eternal book because it comes from an eternal God. I want you to know that although it was written 3,500 years ago, it is relevant in your life today. Tell the person next to you, this stuff is for you. It's for you. Since you ain't got nobody next to you, it's for you. Okay? It's for you. I'm not making this up. This is so cool. I am so stoked about this book. I've never preached through the book of Exodus. I've read it many, many times. You know, most of you have. Every year you start, I'm going to read through the Bible. You get through Exodus, and then you get to Numbers and Deuteronomy, and wheels fall off. Next thing you know, it's June, okay? So most of us have read this book. But what I want you to see over the next several weeks is this book is incredibly relevant in 2022 and 2023, and that's when we're going to be in this thing. Now, I, I named this series Exodus on the Move because in this book, everything is on the move. And so I made a little punch list of some of the things that are on the move. Now, I want you to listen what's in this book, okay? Here it is. National policies are becoming more evil. Culture is redefining itself. Families are struggling. Infanticide is killing a generation. Government leaders have lost their bearing. Armies are at war with each other. People groups are divided. New leadership is emerging, and right in the middle of it, God shows up, and he shows up big. And what I just read sounds like I got that from Fox News last night. 3,500 years, and we have barely changed We are still confused and upside down and live in a land of lunacy. And into the middle of this kind of world, a sovereign, eternal, omnipotent God shows up and shows up big. And I want you to know today, he doesn't just do it for a nation. He does it in the lives of individuals. And that individual could be you. And that's what we're going to see. It, I am so, it is so good. And, and, and the things that God has shown me, even this week, I'm, I'm, I'm already excited about next week. I can preach. You know, as a matter of fact, if, if y'all hang around, I'll preach next week today. I'll, I'll preach the week. I'll, I'll do chapter three. I'm ready. Okay? Because God is on this thing. It is so good for us as a church and as followers of Jesus. And so, and so Exodus, I, I like it too because it's got a cool name. It's got, anything's got an X in it, it's got some teeth, you know, it's Exodus, you know. I want to share something with you. We're going to speak in tongues in just a second. The only thing cooler than the word Exodus is the Hebrew word for Exodus. You know what it is? Shemot. (laughs) Tell me that's not fun. Everybody say Shemot. Holly, did you say it? I didn't hear you. Okay, Shemot. That just sounds cool, like God's getting ready to Shemot somebody. You know what I'm saying? Okay, that's the book we're going to cover, Okay. From the very title, it's, it's cool, all right? Now, in this book, we're going to find out what God's plan is, not for just Israel, 
but for you and for the church. And we're going to see it over and over again. So we know what the book is, Exodus, and it means to exit. It means to depart. Uh, But the Hebrews don't look at it that way. A Jew would call it the book of names because Exodus launches with a list of names, all right? And so once we understand kind of what the book is, and, and, and then we have to ask our question, who wrote the thing, right? Now, if you were raised in church, you're going to say, I know that, it's Moses, okay? You have a traditional conservative view, uh, and we're going to talk about that because there are people who don't believe you're right. Uh, there are uh, higher critics or lower critics, depending on how you view them. There are liberals. There are people who try to undermine every view of Scripture. They try to undermine Scripture itself. They try to undermine the traditional conservative view of Scripture, and they don't believe Moses wrote it at all. In fact, they created a thing called the documentary hypothesis. You can look up that on your own time. Okay, but basically what they have done, they've tried to assign the uh, the books of the Torah, the five books that we believe Moses wrote, to different or various authors. At the same time, they, they also want to say that some of it is not even factually true. It's not history. It's myth or legend. Now... For, for the record, I wasn't here 3,500 years ago, so I didn't see him write it, okay? So I, I, I can't, I'm not an eyewitness. And, and, uh, and, and for the record, nowhere in Scripture does Moses say, I, Moses, am writing this book. But nowhere in the book does it say, my name is somebody else and I'm writing this book. And, and nowhere in the book does it say, my name is Moses and I didn't write this thing. So wh- how do we know? Well, if you ever want to know what the Bible believes about itself, let me tell you where not to go. You ready? School. Now, students, I'm not saying don't go to school. I'm a big fan of school. Okay, I went way too long, okay? School is good. But if you want to know what God says about God's word, ask God's word, not school. So let's look in God's word and let's see if it helps us know that Moses wrote it because it's important that we understand the significance and the power of this book and its authorship and where it came from. Exodus 24, 4 says, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like it says Moses wrote down all of the words of the Lord. Now, if that was the only place it said it, I'd be okay, I'm going to go with that because it's the best I got. But it doesn't. Exodus 34, 27, the Lord said to Moses, write down these words for in accordance with these words, I've made a covenant with you. The reason he wrote them down in Exodus 24 is because in Exodus 34, God said, write them down. Okay, let's keep looking. Deuteronomy 31, 24. When Moses finished writing on the scroll, the words of the law in the entirety, he commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to take the scroll with them. Okay. Joshua 8, 32, somebody else, the one who follows Moses. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua inscribed on stones a duplicate of the law written by Moses. Ezra 6.18, they appointed the priests by their divisions and the Levites by their divisions over the worship of God at Jerusalem in accord with the book of Moses. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, let's go way forward in the New Testament. But until this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, all of that is cool. But what about like Jesus? Did Jesus have a view? Maybe. Let's look at what it says. John chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus said, Hasn't Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keep the law. Why do you want to kill me? Okay. John 5, 46, Jesus said, If you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. Luke 24, 27, Jesus said, 
Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scripture. So what's the position of this church? Because this church right now is led by me as pastor. We believe, I believe Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It is the Pentateuch 5. It is the Torah. It is the first five books of the canonized scripture that we call the Bible. Now, that being said, you can believe Bugs Bunny wrote it. It doesn't matter to me. I believe Moses wrote it. I believe that's a fair assessment of Scripture. I believe if you plant your feet in the fact that Moses wrote it, you can stand before God one day and and give an account on why you chose to believe that. Okay, we good with that? Amen. We keep moving. That's two of us. That's all I need. Now, this these five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they are they are books that build on each other. And so where Genesis chapter 50 let, uh, leaves off, Exodus chapter 1 picks up. Now, they don't go like, okay, I closed chapter 50 of Genesis and tomorrow I'm writing Exodus. No, there's about 400 years of separation between Genesis 50 and Exodus 1. But it continues, it picks up where Genesis chapter 50 left off. Now, What started in Genesis as a family tree, beginning with one man whose name was Abraham, finds a conclusion in the beginning of, at the end of chapter 50, being about 70 descendants. And these 70 people show up looking for refuge from a famine. And God does something unique and amazing in their presence. Now, what what we what Israel would consider bondage, slavery, oppression for 400 years, God sees it as an incubator building a country. And we're going to talk about how we view things in our life today. Because sometimes we get the microscope out, man, and we just hunker down and we'd start looking through it. And, oh, man, I just, this is all I see. Meanwhile, there's a telescope right here. And it's screaming and pointed at God. And meanwhile, God is saying, hey, Let's put the microscope up just for five minutes. Get your telescope out. Look up here. I want to show you something. And now 3,500 years later, 2020 is looking back. It's easy, right? Looking back. And, and so we can look back and say, oh, God used that. And I want you to see today, there's things in your life that may not seem too good that God is using to build you, to develop your character, to conform you to the image of Jesus, okay? And we're going to talk about what that feels like what that looks like, and how we respond to it moving forward. And so how do we live hopeful when God's plan includes difficulties in our life? Watch this. Has anybody got any difficulties in your life ever in your past? Just raise your hand. That's half of us. The rest of y'all, you got it perfect. That's cool. Okay, if you've ever had two at a time, just raise both hands. Just keep them right there. Would you come up and lead us in a song, Caleb? I got their hands up for you. Okay, yeah. We raise our hands. We're all in the same. Isn't that good to know? Sometimes we feel like we're all alone in the difficulty, in the trouble, right? We're not alone. We're all in it. And, we're, and, and as children of God, we're, we're, in, we're in it and he allows it. So the question is, is how do we maintain hope? How do we hold our head up and be strong in times of difficulty? We have to learn to look above the problems of life and focus on the promises of God. Now, 
Now, we have to train ourselves because the default mode, the flesh mode, is to focus on the problems of life. Meanwhile, God extends promises, and he says, if you'll look up here every now and then and focus on these promises, they will trump your problems. They will, they will snuff out your problems. Maybe not in a moment, but over time. And we're going to see that today. So the title of the message on the back of your life guide, for those of you that like to take notes, is simply this, living in the promise. That's what we're going to talk about today. That's what we're going to see a nation do, and that's what we're going to be invited to participate in ourselves. So point number one is this, the promise, the promise. We need to understand the promise. Uh, it begins for you just like it began for Israel. We've got to find the promise of God for our life. In Genesis chapter 15, to get us to Exodus, we have to go back and look at the promise. Listen to what it says in Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign country. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will execute judgment on the nation that they will serve. Afterward, they will come out with many possessions. But as for you, you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. There's the promise. I want you to notice that with the promise, there comes good and there comes bad. God's just truthful. God's honest. And I want to be honest too. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a child of God, every day is not a cookie-eating contest. Some days are hard. Some days are tough. But I want you to know if you're a child of God, with every day of toughness, God provides a blessing on the other side. And it is there. It's extended. And we have to learn the blessings, excuse me, the promises. You see, the nation of Israel knew this promise. And here was the promise. God wanted to start a people group. A people group that he could introduce himself to the world through. A people group that he could not only introduce himself, but come into this world through, through the virgin birth of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so he established a nation. And, it, and this promise was huge because he came to Abram and he said, Abram, bro, I want to start a people group, man. And I want to come and save the world through your ancestors. And Abram's like, that's awesome, God. I need to enlighten you. I'm a hundred. And my wife, she ain't no spring chicken either. And we don't have any kids. And we cannot have any kids. But you got a great plan. But I'm going to tell you, you might want to find somebody else, right? Abram believed him. They had children. And a nation is formed. Now, what formed, as we will see, is 70 direct descendants changes. Now, the promise, here's the key to the promise. You can't participate in every promise of God if you refuse to know what promises God has made you. It's why it's so important that you get in the Word of God. It's why it's so important that you show up to church regularly to hear somebody remind you of a promise. Because let me tell you something about the dimensions of the promises of God. Some of them are general promises, meaning they're always true every day of our life. We walk in that promise fulfilled and free every day. All we can get of it, it's there. But there are other promises of God that come into our life in certain seasons in our life. And we all have seasons in life where we would be better served if we had a promise to hang on to. Amen? There's some parts of our life that we need a promise, man, to tether our life to. And God says, I got them. God says, you just got to find them. But when you find a promise of mine, 
You can hold me to that. In fact, God is cool with you reminding him of his promises. Now, don't fabricate any. You know, you don't have to uh, stretch the truth. Just read it and say, that's a promise. God, you said this. And live in the promise. Now, the answer, the fulfillment of that promise may be immediately. It may be in the now. Or that promise, the fulfillment of that promise may be in the future. But God's promises are always true. And they're always given to his children for our benefit. They're provided by God to remind us, to remind you of how much he loves you and how much he looks after you and how much he wants your life to include him in every aspect, every heartbeat of it. And so we got to learn to look beyond the problems and hang on to the promises of God. And that's why we have to learn the word of God. So the promise, you got to find them. Everybody say this, say, I need to find the promises. Okay, you do. And then hang on to them. Now, once we understand or know or, or, or uh, discover the promises of God, now we have to learn what our proper perspective is as being people of the promise. What's our perspective? How do we look at things, okay? In Scripture, we're going to see this. Because to live in the promise, we have to understand all of the circumstances of our life may not look so promising sometime. In, in the book of Genesis, we find out about a guy, Joseph is one of the primary characters, if not the primary character in all of the second half of the book of Genesis. And, and in this book, uh, Joseph is sold, excuse me, well that was cool, he just got cool in here, didn't he? A little mood lighting, a little disco. Uh, there it is. Uh, but I'm back now. Joseph, J- Joseph was a squirrel. Joseph Joseph was taken by his brothers because they were jealous of him, cast into a cistern and left for dead. Uh, A slave trader came and got him and sold him into slavery as a 17-year-old boy in the nation of Egypt. While as a slave in Egypt, uh, Joseph found himself rising to fame, uh, and he works for Potiphar in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife accuses him of misconduct and immorality. He gets cast into prison. He gets cast into prison only to find out he can interpret dreams. He interprets dreams only to find out that God is giving dreams about the future. He interprets them and he becomes uh, the dream interpreter for Pharaoh, which ultimately leads to the fact that he will be second in command or prime minister in the nation of Egypt. Okay, All of that was given... To Moses, excuse me, to, uh, to Joseph for one reason. God didn't want him to be a prisoner. He didn't want him to be in Potiphar's house. He didn't want him to be a slave. He didn't want him to be in a cistern. He wanted to use him to deliver his people. You see, God put him through all that, allowed all that in his life. But Joseph had to maintain the proper perspective to walk in the promise that God had given to Abraham. Now, in chapter 50, the last chapter of Genesis, we find out that Joseph's father is dead, Jacob. He's dead. And now, Jacob and his brothers have been living for a season in Egypt, and Joseph now is about 40 years old. So about 25 years, he's been separated from his family. And now the dad's dead. And now the brothers are afraid of Joseph. Rightfully so, right? Listen what happens in verse 18. So now his brothers 
came and threw themselves down before him and said, we're your slaves. <laughs> That's a pretty good beginning. They're off to the right, on the right foot. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Now, hold on. If you have a bunch of brothers and they sell you into slavery as a teenager, walk away and keep you exiled from your family for 25 years, you're probably not going to be this happy to love your brothers this much. And yet, listen what Joseph says. His perspective about the promise is spot on. And this is for you. Listen. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Verse 21, so then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Even when life gets tough, when we're children of promise, when things get bad, when things get awkward, when our family treats us illy, when we get sideways with people that we love, when things are just not like, and you know it, things are just not like it should be, what is our perspective? Our perspective is this. What the enemy intended for evil, God is intending for good. He's going to take this mess of a situation, and he wants to use it for his glory. He is still intending his promises on my life. Now, listen, when that happens, it liberates us. All of a sudden, we don't have to do paybacks. All of a sudden, we don't have to be vindictive. All of a sudden, we don't have to get even. All of a sudden, we don't have an agenda. All of a sudden, we say things happen, and sometimes it stinks, but God's on his throne and I just remembered, he's a big God, and I'm, at, I'm in his promises. And so I don't want to mess up the promises of God by getting the wrong perspective of things. So I'm just going to let this come into my life. I'm going to respond to it the best I can. I'm going to walk forward, hold my head up, not focus on the problem, but focus on the pro promises of God. Because the promises of God are everlasting. Because the author of them is an everlasting God. And so it changes our perspective. It liberates us to walk forward in them. Now, what's the greatest ambassador of what I just said being true? That when bad things happen, we hold our heads up to God and we say, God, I'm a child of promise. And what this world seems to be doing at me for evil, you're intending it for good. There's a really cool story in the New Testament where Jesus is hanging on a cross. He's been beaten uh, Unmercifully, he's been beaten unrecognizable, beard plucked out, crown of thorns placed on his head. Uh, he's been nailed hands and feet to a cross, and, and the world has done that to him. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know what he was saying? Father, like Joseph said, what this world intends for evil, you intend for good, and you are accomplishing now saving lives. Jesus did exactly, he fulfilled that verse. I mean, he put skin on that verse. And Jesus is our role model. Our God's goal for you and me in life is to conform to the image of Christ, to act, to talk, 
and to walk around like Jesus. And so we have to get the right perspective regarding the promises God puts in our life. Now, that's all cool. If I was not a Christian and I heard those two points alone, that God makes promises to people and that with the right perspective, he fulfills them, I'm like, that sounds cool. So the question is, who are the promises for? It's a good question. Who are they for? Watch this. I love this. I've never seen this. Lord, I hadn't seen most of this. Lord just smacked me around for the last three or four weeks. Awesome. The people is point number three. Who are the people of the promise? In Exodus chapter one, now we're sliding into Exodus. We finished Genesis. We've got ourselves ready. Now we're moving into Exodus chapter one. Beginning Exodus one, verse one. Here's what it says. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel or Jacob who entered Egypt. Each man with his household entered with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the people who were directly descended from Jacob numbered 70. But Joseph was already in Egypt. So here we go. 70 people. You say, why did, why did you pause that? Did you just want to get an extra point in? Yeah, because I had a P. People is good. No, because here it is. Who are the promises for? The people of God. God didn't put in his grand narrative inspired to Moses to write it that, yeah, there were some people, some descendants, and they came to Egypt. He gave them names. You know why? Because names are important to God. You know why else? Because it's a family. He's pointing out the family of God who are the people of promise. He wants us to know He pinpoints, he isolates, he separates people. He says, you are in my family and I am your God and I make promises to my family, promises that are everlasting, promises that will be true beyond all of the circumstances in your life. He's pointing out a family and he points them out name by name. Now, here's what's amazing about that. You say, oh, what's the point? Why, why is that significant to me? Okay. If you were here in the last series that we preached, it was called DNA, It's Who We Are. And in the series DNA, It's Who We Are, we, just, we talked about the church. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the forever family of God. You see, when we're born again individually, We are adopted into God's forever family. Jesus is our Savior, our Lord, but he's our brother, okay? We're brothers, and that makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. Just like these 70 people listed as direct descendants of Abram as the family of God, the blood-bought church, you have names too. And to God, your name matters. How do I know? Keep reading the Bible. You get to Revelation. You know what you read about? The Lamb's book of life. And you know what's in the Lamb's book of life? The names of the children of God. We're family. Yeah, listen to me. We are family. God was pointing to the nation of Israel, those first descendants. He says, you're family. You're my family. You're in this thing through thick and thin. You're in this thing thing, whether you're hungry or healthy. You're in this thing whether bond or freed. You're family You're going to stand together, one for all, all for one. 
And today in the church, we're family. We're supposed to stand together as family because we're better together. We stand together through thick and thin, hungry and healthy, and we are bond to Jesus, bound to Jesus Christ and set free in the blood of his sacrifice on a cross. We are family. Let me tell you what God believes about his family. Are you ready? We're supposed to be together, stand together, love together, hope together, and be eternally forever together. Now, listen to me. You know what that means? Let me tell you what, when, when you are in the family of God, somebody hates you, and his name is Satan. He hates the family of God, and he's always trying to harm the family of God. Listen to me, church. Everybody look right here. The devil don't need any help. The next time you start to yeah, yeah about your church, the next time you start to get negative about the church, you are playing into the hands of the devil. The devil don't need any help, man. He can hate the church all by himself because he knows what his future holds. The family of God is to stick together, to love together, to work together, to serve together, and to be forever together. I'm telling you, the church needs to hear that because we live in a world where the Christian community has become consumeristic. It's no longer about what God's will is for my life. It's about what my will is for my life. I want, I want all my needs met. I want to be satisfied in everything. And if I'm not, I'm going to find me another family to hang out with. And sometimes that's best, but I'm telling you, we need to be careful with that because we are children of God. We are the family of God, name by name. Now, every time that the enemy rises up to hurt the family. He disguises himself and he shows up in different atmospheres. Uh, sometimes he wants to uh, intend evil in your life at school, students. Sometimes he wants to intend evil in your life, adults, at your employment. Uh, sometimes he wants to intend evil in your life in your neighborhood. Sometimes he shows up in your family and sometimes he shows up in the church. Sometimes he packages his, his intention of evil financially. Sometimes he does it physically. Sometimes he does it relationally. Sometimes he does it spiritually. But I want you to know, Joseph said, what the enemy intends for evil, God will use for good. So we've got to have the right perspective about, uh, about walking in the promises of God. Now, in the New Testament, it tells us about the stuff we go through. Because sometimes it just stinks, right? Sometimes things get a little heavy. Am I the only one? Y'all looking at me like you've never had that. Anybody in here had something like that? You're like, yeah, I, didn't, I don't like that. Just say, I don't like that. Okay, it's good. It's cool. We're all in the same, we're all in the same boat, okay? Uh, Paul weighs into this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, for our momentary and light suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Because we're not looking at what can be seen, but what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is just temporary, but what cannot be seen, it's eternal. Perspective. Children, people of the promise, our perspective rises above the problem, focuses on the promises. Let God be God. Let him take the intentions of evil and turn them into good. We have a promise, a perspective as people of God. Fourthly, here's the part I don't like. I love that part right there. 
And I love the next part. I don't like point number four. You want to skip it? Can't skip it. It's in there. Got to cover it all. Point number four is the package. The package of the promise. He says in verse six, and in time, Joseph and his brothers and all that generation, they died. The Israelites, however, were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied, became extremely strong, and the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power over Egypt. And he said to his people, look at the Israelite people. They're more numerous and stronger than we are. Come and let us deal wisely with them. Otherwise, they will continue to multiply. And if a war breaks out, they will ally themselves with the enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put foremen over the Israelites to oppress them with hard labor. And as a result, they built Pithom and Ramesses and as store cities for Pharaoh. Verse 12. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. As a result, the Egyptians loathed the Israelites. And they made the Israelites serve rigorously. They made their lives bitter by hard service with mortar and bricks and by all kinds of service in the fields. Every kind of service the Israelites were required to give was rigorous. The package of the promise sometimes doesn't seem so promising. You feeling me on that? Sometimes as people of the promise, we're not feeling it as so promising. It doesn't look so good. In this passage, listen, these are people of promise, and listen to what happened. Joseph died. There, that's a, there's a good one. His brothers, they died. A whole generation died. The Pharaoh who honored Joseph and Joseph's God, he died, didn't even know Joseph. Many years have slipped away, and dynasties have passed, and it doesn't look like the promises are real. They are oppressed, experiencing hard labor, rigorous, bitter, and hard are the words used to describe what Egypt inflicted on the people of promise. And if you are a Hebrew, you're thinking, my benefits package is the worst one I've ever seen. You know, as employees, sometimes we have benefit packages, you know, and they're thinking, we're people of promise. We're God's family. And man, it's not looking so good. I think I would be better served in another family. Meanwhile, God's view is entirely different. God's promises are according to his timeline and not the timeline of man. Sometimes God gives a very clear revelations with all the details. And sometimes his promises come with distant details. Some of his promises, as I said earlier, they happen now. They're fulfilled now. Some of his promises, the timeline, they are fulfilled in the future. And we don't sometimes know which one it is. But God's promises are always everlasting. And we hang on to those promises. And we, uh, and we develop hope in those promises because God will always fulfill his promises. Now for Israel, a 400 years of oppression felt like 400 years of oppression. But from God's vantage point, the whole time, he had put a small group of 70 people in a very uh, healthy, wealthy country, the most powerful in the world, so he could protect it. What looked like 400 years of 
Oppression, from God's perspective, was a 400-year incubator. It was a 400-year boot camp. Now, if you join the military, they send you to boot camp. If you go to Camp Lejeune, now they start sending you checks. I've never seen a commercial so often as Camp Lejeune, okay? But let me tell you what boot camp is never, 400 years long. But for Israel, it was 400 years of boot camp. Now, listen to me. Why? He's getting the people of promise ready to occupy the promised land. And he's getting the promised land ready to be occupied by the people of promise. You see, God orchestrates this stuff. His plan is so vast, so majestic, and so huge. And often, as I said earlier, we get our microscope out, and God's like, get your telescope. It's bigger than what you're seeing in that microscope. So time passes and things change, but God never changes. People forget what God's done in the past. This particular Pharaoh forgot Joseph. God never forgets. He never forgets his promises to you. He can't. He's everlasting. He's omniscient, all-knowing. He cannot forget. He knows where you are. He knows what he's allowed in your life and what the world seems to be intending for evil. All the while, God is trying to stir it, breathe upon it, and make it his intention to be good in your life. So what does that look like? 400 years of an incubator for a nation. So it started out with 70 direct descendants, right? That's what it said. So what happens after 400 years? Are they ready to occupy? Are they strong enough to march across the countryside and ultimately take the promised land? In Scripture, it tells us. It says in just a few chapters, Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, it says the Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot plus their dependents. 600,000 men, which... Scholars say these are fighting-aged men. So about uh, 18 till they can't fight anymore. 600,000 plus their families. So now what used to be 70 descendants is estimated at, you ready? 2.4 million strong. 2.4 million people. What the devil intended for evil, God intended for good. He's at work behind the scenes. He's, he's fulfilling his promise to Abram, the old man, his wife. He says, I'm going to make, when you go out and look at the stars, it ought to remind you of how many people's going to be in your family tree. When you go out and look into the stars, I want you to be mindful that in all of that vastness that I'm going to give you, out of you will come one who will save the world, and his name is Jesus Christ. God sees things differently. Now, how, how do we live, walk in that when, when, we, when we don't see it and, and when the package of the promise is not what we would have written for ourselves? <laughs> All right, what's this? Have you had a season in your life where the promise as a child of God didn't really look like something you would have written for yourself? Let me rephrase that. Have you had things in your life that you would rather have not had in your life book Raise your hand. Look at all y'all. People lack of faith. You ain't counting the promises. Sometimes the package for the promise just doesn't look like what we would write for ourselves. That's where we have to trust a big old God who loves us enough to come to this earth 
and die on a cross to call us his own. Listen to me. If God would die on a cross for you, his package for his promise is going to be okay. So when we have a package of promise, it doesn't look too promising, doesn't feel too good in our life, how do we walk in that? I finish with point number five. I want to introduce you to two people, champions of the faith. Two people who knew how to posture themselves in a difficult package of promise because they are people of promise. The posture for promise. Verse 15 of Exodus 1 says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, a midwife for young guys, who would not know this, are ladies who help other ladies have babies. Okay? The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom's name was Shifra and the other Pua. There's a couple of good girl names for your future babies, Shifra and Pua. He says, when you assist the Hebrew women in childbirth, absorb at, uh, absorb, observe at the delivery. If it is a son, kill him. But if it is a daughter, she may live. Now, the players in this are simple. The king of the most powerful nation in the world, who, who could do anything he wanted to do, and he chose to kill all the baby boys of Israel. And the other players are two barren midwives. Barren because tradition says midwives for Israel would be ladies who could not have children of their own, and so they would help pregnant ladies give birth to their children. Now, the king doesn't know God, but these two women know that they are people of promise. And now they're at the crossroads. What is your posture? Where do you stand? Where do you plant your feet? How do you hold your head up when the package of the promise is rough? And when the world is pushing against what you know to be right and true, what do you do? You see, the king had a motive here. The motive was that he was full of the power of the devil. His motivation was not just to weaken the future military. His motivation was not to just hurt the emotions of emotional state of the nation of Israel. His intention was to eliminate and to annihilate a family tree that would include Jesus Christ. It's not the first attempt of the enemy to wipe out the, the bloodline of Jesus. No, he's always tried to do that. And so his motivation is very clear. And meanwhile, you have these two ladies who are at the crossroads. What is the posture they will take? Verse 18. Excuse me. Verse 17. But... I love this. Shifra, Pua, rock stars. Listen to this. The midwives feared God, and they did not do what the king of Egypt told them, and they let the boys live. I just like that. To the face of the king, the most powerful single man on the planet, they did not do what he said. Why? Because they feared God. The posture to live in a rough, in a difficult package of promise. Our posture is simply to fear God and live for Him and hang on to the promise for dear life. 
And they knew that the people of promise, listen to me, they knew that every time a Hebrew woman gave birth, God might be allowing them to give birth to a deliverer. And they weren't going to interfere with God's work. Now, it's civil disobedience. What is that? Sometimes it's okay to disobey, disobey the government. When the government's law tries to override or discount the law of God, our posture is to live according to the law of God, right? Now, watch what happens. Verse 18, then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and he said to them, why have you done this? And let the boys live. It's a good question, right? Powerful king, two barren midwives, face to face. Why have you let the boys live against my command? The midwives said to Pharaoh, listen, well, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for the Hebrew women are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife gets to them. <laughs> That's so cool. So they lied just a little bit, maybe. So the question is, is it okay to lie sometimes? Who said they lied? Who said they lied? We're talking about people of promise. You keep reading Exodus. He's going to save a baby boy in a basket floating in the water lined with pitch. He's going to lead two and a half million people out of bondage, and they're going to take all of the gold and silver and money with them when they go. He's going to bring them to the crossroads of the river. He's going to part the sea. They'll walk across, two and a half million of them on dry land, look back and watch God close the sea and drown the army standing behind them. He's going to march them through the wilderness and deliver them to a promised land. They are people of promise. God is a promise keeper. And I believe that God blessed miraculously the Hebrew women. Who's to say that God couldn't say, Hebrew women, for a season, your delivery is going to be different than the rest of the world. I mean, these are what I'd call Hollywood deliveries. These are Hollywood mothers. You watch a 30-minute episode of Gunsmoke, woman gets pregnant, water breaks, deliver the baby with a towel and some hot water. Have him in a nice little outfit. In 30 minutes, that baby's there, and that includes station break advertisements. Right? That's the way it was for the Hebrews, I believe. Whoa, the water just broke. Where's the stool? Sit down on the stool. Wah! Next. We're talking about people of promise. We're talking about God. It's not normal stuff. I don't believe they lied. I believe they just told the truth. So, man, this is different. God's people are giving birth, and we can't even catch up with them. Now, for the record, I did not marry a Jewish woman. She milked that thing for all day long. And most of y'all's wives did the same thing, okay? It would have been good, Kendra, if we'd have been under that promise. Just, pew, there it is, wham. That would have been good. Let's finish up. Verse 20 through 22, God, oh, people of promise, God treated the midwives well, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, I'm going to read that again, because a couple of ladies, barren, simply had the right posture, and they feared God. He made households for them. He gave them children. He gave them families now. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, 
All sons that are born, you must throw them in the river. But all daughters, you may let live. He's going to double down. In spite of the miracles, in spite of the people of promise, Pharaoh's going to double down. He is, he is determined to kill these baby boys. And that will lead us into chapter 2 next week. So we're going to finish here. And how do we land this? How, how do we walk away from Exodus chapter 1 and say, Thank you, God. That, I didn't really see that one coming. 3,500 years ago, you spoke. And it was in, you gave that to Moses to write for me to hear on this particular day. Here it is. I told you Genesis flows into Exodus. It's like a sequel. That's your life. Genesis and Exodus is our life. We all have a Genesis, a beginning. You got one, I got one, you're here. And we come into this world much like Genesis. God just creates it and lets us be here. He knew us while we were yet in our mother's womb. He lets us get here. And just like about chapter uh, 3 of Genesis, we mess it all up, right? We, We become sinners. We're broken. We fall apart. And we find ourselves bound to something. Initially, it's just general sin. We're under the sin curse. But maybe now as adults, we still have stuff in our life that has us held back, that has us in captivity. It could be anything. It could be our health. It could be our, uh, our, our finances. It could be a broken relationship. It could be a troubled child. It could be a sick mother. It could be uh, anything. It, it could be anything that has us held back from walking full and free in the promises of God. God says, I got another book. I got another book called Exodus. I got a walking out book for you. I got a book, well, a Shemot book, where we're going to walk out of that bondage. I want you to know, if you're a child of God, you are people of promise. God's made promises to you that he cannot not fulfill. He must because he's God. And I want you to know today, if you're here, listen to me, everybody. If you're here today and you've never been born again, you've had the wrong posture your whole life. Maybe you've heard it many times, but you've never had the right posture. What is the posture to become a person of promise? You ready? Repentance and humility. We simply hear God inviting us into his family, the people of promise, and we simply agree with him and say, I get it. I'm a sinner. I've messed this thing up. But I I feel you inviting me into an exodus, a departure, an exit from that. I repent of my sin. I agree with you, and I receive your grace gift. I believe Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead for me. I want that Jesus to come into my life and set me free. And you know what he will do? He will come into your life and he'll begin a journey setting you free one step at a time in the journey because now you will be considered part of the people of promise. I want you to bow your head, close your eyes. I want you to know today God loves you so much. So much that he came to this earth and died in your place for your sin and for my sin. That same God wants to fulfill his promises in your life. And his promises are good. And his promises are everlasting. And if, you're, if you've never received him into your life, this could be, as scripture says, your day of salvation. The day where he 
changes all of your past and makes you new. That choice is yours. You simply need to pray to him for forgiveness and receive his grace gift into your life. And for the rest of us, which are many, who have already received God's grace gift into our life, we are people of promise. It's time that we take our focus off of the problems and we rise our, our vision up to the promises of God. Father, I thank you so much for every person that's here, every family represented. God, I thank you so much for this church on this hill that you've done great things through. God, I thank you for what you're wanting to do in the future. I thank you for stirring our hearts, God, with this amazing number two book in your, in your Bible, Exodus. God, help us all move from where we are to the place you would want us to be. And God, we thank you in advance for the promises made and the promises already fulfilled and the promises made that are yet to be seen. We give you praise and glory for them all because you are a good, good God in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.